This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Buy the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin, and with me is my fellow reader interested in the life and times of others, Sharmila Ganesan. Hello. So today we are going to be talking about a topic that we haven't covered properly on the show, oddly enough. We've done a number of things circling it. I think some of the recommendations we're going to mention we've talked about in other shows as well, but we haven't actually talked about what is sometimes called the sacred art of the memoir. So that's what we're focusing on today. You know, when when we first started talking about this idea, I I think I responded by saying, oh, I'm not sure if that would really work. I don't think I love reading memoirs that much. But um, it turns out. <laughs> as it turns out, because you pushed back and said, no, I think you'd be surprised to think about how many you might have read. And it's true. Um, I just think that, I just think that in my head, I sometimes get stuck with thinking of memoirs or um, autobiographies as being a very particular sort of writing. Um, and particularly in the Malaysian context, they often tend to be by politicians, right? So you have former prime ministers, you have AGs. Um, and that to me is only interesting in a sort of academic way. Um, but when I look back at the sorts of memoirs I've actually genuinely sought out and enjoyed, as it turns out, more of a fan than I thought. So I knew going in that I've read a lot of memoirs. It's not a purposeful thing. Uh, I think I just went through a phase when I was a younger reader of reading a fair amount of them. And therefore, from time to time, whenever I see memoirs, particularly written in the style of literary nonfiction, I think that's the stuff that interests me most. You're right that while you have public figures of note writing memoirs all the time, in fact, it seems to be a perfectly viable retirement path for many, um, I, I agree with you that they're not always the most interesting, partly because some of them aren't very good writers. And um, so what happens is sort of an accounting of their life without any any style or, or verve or any of the things that would make you want to keep reading aside from an actual interest in that person. I think that the best memoirs are written, this is going to sound very silly, but the best memoirs are written by good writers. Um, and the best memoirs are written by good writers who are willing to if not be vulnerable with you, then do a really good facsimile of vulnerability. Because that's the trick with memoir, right? You're not sure, really. Oh, um, the vulnerability, I think, is so important. Or, or if not vulnerability, openness, transparency, mm. a certain, actually not a certain, a huge willingness to bear themselves to the reader. Because the thing with public figures or politicians who might write memoirs, which which again is why maybe something like Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is hugely popular with many readers, I'm not at all putting it down. For me, not the biggest source of interest because I think it feels a little bit like a, like a success story and a, here's how I got there. And, and that can be hugely inspiring. But it also feels a little bit polished. Whereas I think I, I enjoy the memoirs and the autobiographies where people feel human. And to your point about why often um, politicians in particular don't do so well in that regard is because I don't think they're writing it themselves, are they? Most of them hire ghostwriters or uh, biographers, autobiographers who write it for them. Um, and that you can tell because the voice doesn't sound like their voice. Oddly enough, Phil Knight's Shoe Dog is also ghostwritten by the same man who ghostwrote uh, Spare and Open, J.R. Oh, that's right. 
right. Yes. So, um, yeah, the, the role of the ghostwriter is entirely its own thing. Can we talk? I think um, you have led us very neatly. I wasn't intending to open with this book, but I think now we have to. Let's talk about the Obamas because... Um, oh, well, we have to, right? I mean, we, we've talked about the book. Uh, we've actually book clubbed. Have we book clubbed both? We only book clubbed A Promised Land because I didn't read Becoming until much later. Right. Okay. So, but the point being, we've read both Barack Obama's book as well as Michelle Obama's. And I think however you might feel about them as public figures, however you might feel about the role of the American president, um, I think that there is no denying that A Promised Land is kind of exemplary when it comes to political memoir. I know. Um, and we said this in our We were reluctant talking well. about it then. Yeah. yeah. It's a really beautifully written book though. Um, and even if you didn't already drink the Obama Kool-Aid before, it's very difficult to emerge from it not wanting to. Um, and you do need a healthy dose of, well, okay, life was a lot more complicated than this might might say. But that's the power of good writing, right? Like that is the power of a really well-written and a, a really well-written book with a really strong voice because he manages to convince you to see his viewpoint on almost everything. In fact, when you read that book, depending on how fast a reader you are, because Obama has a famously slow cadence, you, you end up kind of reading it slower because yes. in his voice and tone. Yes, in his weird, halting voice. <laughs> you, you end up reading it in that way because it just sounds so much like him. But yeah, I think that as far as political memoirs go or memoirs of political figures, that one strikes the the kind of sweet spot of feeling like it has boundaries, of course, because, you know, confidential files mm -hmm. and you know he just has a lot of knowledge that maybe a memoir is in the right place for but um, it has that mix of vulnerability as well as uh, perspective and philosophy it kind of you get a sense of who he is as a person and also who he was as a president. So I think it, it hits that sweet spot. Michelle Obama's becoming, though, is particularly interesting in this area because some people would consider her the more interesting Obama anyway. And I think that it would have been very easy for her book to go down the same path of any number of well-written and highly influential women memoirs. You know, women tend to come up in this category a lot. I'm thinking of your Cheryl Strades and your Elizabeth mm -hmm. Gilberts. And it could have been very easy for Michelle Obama's book to fall into that category. But I didn't think it did, partly because I didn't leave it feeling like I, I needed to go to Bali or anything. You know, I, I just I, I just found myself very interested in her. I've read Becoming described by many people as it feels like you're sitting down with your best female friend and having a chat about life. Um, and that's really the tone. It's interesting because the tone is actually so different when you compare it to uh, not just Promised Land, but even Barack Obama's previous memoirs. Um, hers is a lot more human, almost like, oh, this isn't the first lady. This is just Michelle who I hang out with. And that, I think, has been her vibe, right? Again, the voice is very strong in becoming. And even the journey to becoming first lady, ha, becoming first lady, um, it, it feels like a very human journey. The truth is, I don't know how much behind the scenes work has gone into either of their books. But I think this is, as you said, they're both very, very, very good examples of what the genre can do. Which is not to say that they are our biggest recommendations. I, I, I Like I said, I didn't expect to start with telling you to go out and buy more copies of the Obama's already wildly best-selling memoirs. 
I wanted to ask you, though, which category of memoir you find yourself reading, because I was taken aback at the realisation that I seem to really enjoy, for some reason, tragic childhoods, did not expect that, did not necessarily see it coming. Um, and I'm not sure what it says about me. Going to spend the rest of this episode unpacking that, but I, I seem to take quite a lot of interest, and the publishing industry does as well, in uniquely unhappy childhoods. Yeah, I don't think that's too far from mine. I was looking at my list, um, which we'll get to, but they mostly involve stories of trauma growing up, a lot of things to do with growing up in disadvantaged backgrounds mm. or, you know, to do with race and how that shapes you. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I think I also particularly enjoy, and this might have to do with the post-colonial reader that I am, I enjoy a lot of the older, so your George Orwells or your Frank McCourts, and of course, Roald Dahl and Boy and Going Solo. Um, so I love those. I think because reading them today uh, feels almost like fiction. So I'm glad you brought up Frank McCourt because I think Angela's Ashes is probably one of the most widely read memoirs and it's so wonderfully written. I loved both Angela's Ashes and Tiz. I just really swallowed them whole when I read them the first time because I, I enjoyed those books so much despite the fact that they're incredibly incredibly sad. They're also, they do a neat trick though of being very funny, of also being very lyrically written and of immersing you in a place. You genuinely feel like you're growing up with Frank McCourt, with his brother, with all the struggles that they're facing in that neighbourhood, like you're eating fried bread and drinking tea. I need to confess something. I've never read Angela's Ashes. I've read Tiss. I love Tiss. I've never read Angela's Ashes. I know it's one of those weird things. You started at the end. I started with this, yeah. Um, in fact, I remember when I read it, um, because I picked up the book at a like a secondhand sale or something, I didn't realize that it was even the continuation of Angela's Ashes. I just read it as a standalone. I loved this. Um, someday, I think I'll go back and read Angela's Ashes, but I know so much about it also that I think it's one of those cases now where I'm like, okay, I will get to it, but when I have time, Frank McCourt is such a warm, funny writer, but again, tragic childhood, like not tragic, but difficult, I think, or, or challenging and how that shapes his eventual journey into becoming a teacher and the kind of teacher that he wanted to be. I think I, I enjoyed the teaching aspect so much, but then I don't have anything to compare it to. So I was, again, looking at my, looking at my bookshelves and looking at the lists that people make of memoirs that they recommend and, you know, just trying to align the two. And that's when I realised alongside Frank McCourt, I've also read uh, Mary Carr's The Liars Club, which I think is just wonderful, uh, as well as Jeanette Walls's The Glass Castle. And they deal more with erratic, um, erratic parents, again, growing up in disadvantaged settings and are both written with a lot of honesty. And I've realised lyricism is a thing that I, I look for. I think that the beauty of memoir is that you have the benefit of looking back at something and therefore being able to to tie the connections and to, to tie the strands of different stories and people in your life together into one coherent narrative in a way that real life doesn't often afford you and in a way that fiction allows. But, you know, fiction is fiction. You know somebody's making it up. But the, the beauty of being able to look back at somebody going, well, this moment led me up to this. Being raised by this person made me this kind of person. That There's a real pleasure in that that comes, again, sadly, from reading 
funny and wry accounts of difficult childhoods? I was actually thinking about almost the opposite. Um, and in fact, the um, maybe veering quite quite drastically into the the genre that I said I wasn't as big a fan of the inspirational memoir mm. but the talking about teachers but also this kind of the the structuring of a life in a way that makes sense to the to the reader um I always think of uh, Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album um, because it is literally a um I can't remember now I think it was oh it it was 14 visits that he had with his former professor before the professor passed away because the professor had been diagnosed with ALS. Um, and, you know, even just how it starts, he was someone who was formative to him during his university days. And then he saw on TV that he had been diagnosed with ALS, decided to visit him and visited him every Tuesday, as the title would suggest. Um, and this notion of life lessons, um, it's one of those things that can seem a little twee, but there's something about the way it's written. And again, it's actually Maury Schwartz's life that feels like it it comes through. So it's not even really Mitch Albom's memoir. It's Mitch Albom's memoir of his experience with Maury Schwartz. And there's something quite beautiful about it. And it does that thing that you were saying, right? It, it sort of gives you a window or organizes someone's life in a way that feels narrative. You've never read Angela's Ashes. I've never read Tuesdays with Maury. So we are each, you know, maybe just coming out with our dirty little confessions about the things that are perennially on the bestsellers list that we've just never read. Uh, we're talking today about memoirs and we'd like to hear from you. Do you like reading somebody writing about their own life? Do you have favourites that you'd like to recommend? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. Because friends matter. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila, and we're talking today about memoirs. So thus far, we extolled the virtues of the Obamas, and then we discussed some other favourites, including Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Albom, Frank McCourt's various works, Mary Carr's The Liars Club, and Jeanette Walls' The Glass Castle. Um, so that brings me to my next category, which is food... So. For the remainder of, of the, the segment, I've realised the other things I, I like to read about are food memoirs, uh, travel memoirs, as well as funny memoirs, I guess. And food made me think both of Down and Out in Paris and London by George Orwell, uh, which mm -hmm. was his first published work. And then someone who was deeply inspired by that, and I've talked about it many times before, but Anthony Bourdain's various books. Oh, um, I was going to suggest Kitchen Confidential anyway. Mm. I had a feeling you would bring him up. And and I love that you referenced Orwell because I think that the link is really important. Um, I didn't realize until much later that Bourdain had been so inspired by George Orwell. I think food memoirs are tricky, right? Because the food can often do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, if you are a good enough writer and you can evoke memories of food, sometimes it almost feels like you don't have to do a lot more. I think a good example of that is Elizabeth Gilbert and the Italy section, um, which is my favorite section in her book. I I will be honest, it's not my favorite memoir at all. But the Italy part is very successful. But that's because like writing about food can immediately be relatable. But what I love about Anthony Bourdain is how it, you know, he uses food and food culture and particularly the, uh, in the earlier books, the idea of what it's like to be in a restaurant. So viscerally, like you get to know 
people and personalities and cultures and places. Um, I love Anthony Bourdain. Um, yeah. I, I've talked about him many times on the show, so I don't want to necessarily repeat myself except to say that I agree with what you you pointed out. I think also the self-deprecation of his work is something yes. that maybe we, we haven't spoken about a lot. And I think that it's a fine line when you're reading a memoir for the memoirist to be self-deprecating. And Anthony Bourdain is interesting because he started with Kitchen Confidential, which is about his life. But subsequent books were really uh, publications of well, either accompaniments for a show or a collection of his writings or, or things like that, they weren't necessarily a sequel to the memoir mm. that he'd written before the thing that he's now best known for happened to him. So it's actually a memoir of a very specific time in his life. And um, I think that he was always self-deprecating. I mean, all his writing has that quality. But I do think it's a fine line because you don't necessarily want to read somebody constantly putting themselves down because what's where's the value in that necessarily? But the the visceral nature and the descriptive nature of what he wrote about, the fact that he was interested not necessarily in fine dining, but in the the people making your food, uh, mm -hmm. living less than, I guess, um, luxurious lives, all of that made him very interesting. I was going to ask you, because this isn't actually a genre that I seek out. Um, I like food nonfiction, like history of the rice or whatever. Um, but um, food memoirs are not necessarily something I seek out. I was going to ask you, um, who else you would recommend? Oh, I don't know. I, so I've read uh, excerpts of Gabrielle Hamilton's book, which which I oh, thought was really yeah. interesting. So the problem with cooks, I think, not cooks, sorry, the problem with chefs and chefs or food critics, and, and they're often the ones who write food memoirs, is that it really depends on how seriously you take food, <laughs> you know? Because after a while, I, I don't know if everybody necessarily sees everything through the eyes of their first squab. No, sorry. Um, so that's I don't know why I went with that particular bird. Well, I said the history of rice, so I think you can say the first one. Um, I think so, you know, for instance, um, Ferran Adria's memoir, I've never necessarily been interested in it because uh, it sounds like a famous person talking about the thing that made them famous. And I'm not sure that I necessarily find that super interesting. Oh, that reminds me. So the thing that I wanted to say earlier was that the thing about chefs is also, and this is something that's been deconstructed a little bit more recently, I don't know how much people want to believe in the tortured genius notion or trope yes. anymore. And Especially when they write about it themselves. Yeah, so so I think that's the thing. And then also because there's been so much uh, discussion about the nature of the kitchen, uh, a professional kitchen, and whether that is the healthiest work environment to be in. So to read somebody at the head of that situation go, oh, and life was really hard because, you know, this dum-dum doesn't know how to fry an egg. <laughs> you know, it's not always the thing that, that you most want to read, I think. We have a whole episode dedicated to this, so I don't think we, again, have to go back there. Medical memoirs, though, are a category of their own. And Paul Kalanithi's When Breath Becomes Air, I think, is is a particularly famous one um, in, this, in this context. I love that book. I find it very difficult to revisit. Um, but yeah, it also comes up on many, many lists of, you know, best memoirs of all time. And I think for good reason. Again, it's it's very human. It's very relatable. Um, and in that same way that actually Tuesdays with Maury actually eventually starts becoming more sad as you realize you're, you're reaching the end of someone's life. I think it's both vicarious, but also almost too real to read about the impending 
death of someone that you've gotten to know so well over the pages of a book and you know was a real person. Have you ever read uh, Just Kids? No. Uh, so I I was thinking about I was thinking about the the way Paul Kalanithi writes about approaching death, about I guess the push and pull of knowing what happens as a medical doctor, but also of being that person who's experiencing the moment as it happens. And Patty Smith's Just Kids. I mean, firstly, Patty Smith. Yeah. You know, um, fascinating life, fascinating person. And so reading about her growing up as an artist or growing into the artist that she would become known as, uh, living in the Chelsea Hotel, you know, just if you buy into any of that New York mythos, then Patti Smith's Just Kids was always going to be interesting. But if you have an interest in her art, as well as in the art of Robert Maplethorpe, then it's particularly fascinating. But there's also a segment um, in which Robert Maplethorpe, the person that she's loved uh, for most of her life, you know, who they were both so important to each other. She writes about his death. And that part is so raw that it actually takes my breath away. I find reading the writing of grief quite difficult. Um, I, we spoke about this when we did our tribute to Joan Didion, I think. Ah, yes. And, and yeah, and, and it's simultaneously beautiful, but something that I really, really need to make space for both emotionally and, um, you know, just in terms of time. I, I know that you mentioned books that are funny. And I think this actually takes us quite neatly into that because a recent memoir, well, not so recent, but, you know, of modern times that I enjoyed a lot was actually Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. And that does an odd thing of bringing together actually a number of the different threads that we've talked about. Um, difficult childhood, the fact that it actually leads up to his mother being shot and um, surviving. But, you know, you're not quite sure that's what's going to happen. But it's also deeply funny. Uh, he writes about basically growing up as a person of mixed race under the apartheid, but with this very wry tone, the same thing that you would recognize, uh, you know, in his stand-up or in his shows. And I think what's most interesting is that he actually wrote his memoir, not as Trevor Noah of today, but early on in his career. So in a way, um, it was a, a much more uh, raw and, and new person to get to know through his book. Well, I'm just going to throw out uh, Bossy Pants and Yes, Please, because yeah. if you enjoy Faye Polar, then of course, those two books are wonderful companion pieces for their work, but also each other. And I just kind of throw that out because I wanted to get to a central question to close off our show, which is, Sharmila, as a newly realised reader of memoir, it turns out you've been reading them all along, you just didn't know. I wanted to know what your thoughts are, because increasingly I find myself mulling it over as we discuss, uh, what your thoughts are on memoirs of a specific moment in people's lives or a specific period versus somebody writing at the end of their life looking back on a very long, long and, you know, illustrious time? I think I actually might prefer them to like the looking back on life, right? Because it has a, it has an immediacy and a very, again, it feels like fiction. I'm beginning to realize that the memoirs I enjoy the most feel like they could be a, a story that is written not of our life or of a real life. And, and I don't know if that makes sense, but I think when we think of um, even Tis or, or Kitchen Confidential, they almost feel like they are an episode of someone's life. And many books actually feel that way, rather fiction books feel that way. 
Isn't it also a recognition that you maybe cannot engineer, if you are not an interesting person uh, inherently, you maybe cannot engineer an entire memoir out of five years of something significant happening in your life that you're writing about 40 years later and yet yes, you're telling yes. the story of all 70 years of your life and I think that you know just just knowing that is important because a lot of the memoirs that we have been talking about today are written by people who were usually in middle age or kind of even still relatively young, it's just that something had happened to them and they wanted to write about it. We didn't get to talk about psychology memoirs because that's its own thing. People writing mm -hmm. about being in therapy and the things that they learn from it. But again, those are often glimpses of a person's life in a moment in time. And yeah, I think we might both land on, on that side of things. It's interesting to read somebody who's continuing to live their life, reflecting back on a certain period of years. I don't want to end this on a downer and I don't think that's what I'm trying to say. Um, but I think as we, as you were saying that, I was thinking, by and large, most people are never interesting all the time, are they? They have interesting things happening to them, some people more than others. And and I think the, the slice of a life reflects that a lot more truthfully than a I am... 80 and I'm now trying to make a case that everything that happened to me when I was six was monumentally important and it, it, it doesn't strike true. And that is why I won the Nobel Prize. You know, it's just nobody is interested in that. Uh, okay, we've been talking today about memoirs. Let us know, do you have a favourite, but also do you enjoy reading people writing about their own lives? You can send us a WhatsApp, 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Why do you like Harry Potter? It's a story about acceptance and love. Like, I had not such a great childhood, and I think a kid with not such a great childhood actually escaped to something else in a book. Teaches, you know, the importance of friendships, the importance of forgiveness. The way people pull together, they're, they're different, they don't all exactly agree with one another, but they can say, okay, this is the common good, and this is what we're going to work for. What do you think of J.K. Rowling? Um, um, I... So there's a lot of controversy with that one. So I have a comment that I'll say off the, yeah. off the thing. Let me... I never set out to upset anyone. However, I was not uncomfortable with getting off my pedestal. And what has interested me over the last 10 years, and certainly in the last few years, the last two, three years, particularly on social media, you've ruined your legacy. Oh, you could have been beloved forever, but you chose to say this. And I think you could not have misunderstood me more profoundly. I'm Megan Phelps Roper, and coming soon, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. 
Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And that brings us to footnotes, where we've got a quick but hopefully interesting little slice of life for you because we're talking about an author who hasn't written a memoir, although many elements of her life are already in the public arena, are already widely known because she is so famous. We're talking about The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, which is a podcast uh, that is actually hosted by Megan Phelps Roper, who is formerly of the Westboro Baptist Church, who's kind of come out the other end of that and is now investigating notions of belief and what it means to sign up for something or to fully immerse yourself in something. And the thing that she's investigating is not so much J.K. Rowling's entire life, but more her recent controversies surrounding the issues of women and trans women. I think it's incredibly important to know where Megan Phelps Roper comes from, right, in this. Um, And I actually love this podcast so much because it got me thinking, it also got me thinking about not just the issues at the heart of it, i.e., as you said, trans women and women's rights and where some of the tensions between that have been, but even just what we mean when we say free speech, how the internet has developed and aided conversations around free speech as well as discourse and arguments and people with privilege versus not, all of those things. And I think specifically knowing her background, which that this is someone who um, wasn't just a spokesperson for the Westboro Church, which is classified as a hate group by some organizations, uh, but also, in fact, um, her grandfather was the founder of the yes. church and yes. her mother was a major player in the church. And they used to protest at funerals and things like that, right? So she actually um, talks about how she saw uh, the importance of discourse and learning and listening through her Twitter account and by people approaching her online. So she then uses that lens to unpack both J.K. um, Rowling's rise, like like monumental rise to success, and also the current um, discomfort and and outright hatred that she's also now receiving. And it's such a good listen. Um, I feel like they do such a great job unpacking the time period within which this happened and also the different arguments in it. I'm just going to say this up front as well because I think it's important for people to know depending on what your your podcast tolerance is. But she really, she speaks directly to J.K. Rowling. So it's because I'm worried that we're making it sound like it's an investigation of Rowling. Or, no, she basically wrote to Rowling, right? And um, to her surprise, Rowling replied and then agreed to a series of interviews. And that forms the backbone of the whole show. So when we talk about the the things that she's discussing and where she's coming from, the you get to hear her own perspectives, um, her own feelings about why it is that she she says the things she says, how it feels to be in the the line of social media fire. Um, and you get to make up your own mind. And I think that that is a real valuable thing because sometimes when you're caught up in the discourse on social media, it can very much feel like it's it's this way or the highway, or for that matter, like you're not getting a a well-rounded look at something. But this podcast is very invested in you being able to make up your own mind about what exactly this is or where you fall on the spectrum of opinion. So I think that's important to say. Uh, it also acknowledges the importance of J.K. Rowling as an author and, and talks about why it is that her being such an influential author makes this so particularly painful. 
Yeah, the the podcast manages to pack so much actually into the episodes, uh, eight episodes, I believe, overall, seven or eight. And I think I I love the fact that it examines it from the different perspectives. They She also speaks to trans rights activists. She also speaks to academics. She speaks to historians of uh, discourse on the internet. And um, in the end, I think what you emerge with is actually food for thought. It doesn't necessarily make you take any positions. I don't think it's even there to convince you out of thinking what you might already think. But I think instead it is encouraging you with any issue like this to give all sides a chance, um, informing your opinions, not necessarily saying every side has a point, but saying that it is important that we learn to discern why we appear at a certain cultural moment. So we have been talking or rather recommending The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, which is not a book, it's a podcast, um, but about a very well-known author, of course. Let us know if you're planning to have a listen or if you've already listened and enjoyed. Again, you can send us a WhatsApp at 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.